incredible words. As we begin this morning, uh, turn to Romans chapter 12, if you have your Bibles, verses 14 through 21. And let's begin. Oh, I'm sorry. The children may be dismissed to their classes. I always forget that. Just follow the gentleman going out there, the lady going out there. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. It is so marvelous. It is a light unto our path. Your word, Lord, reveals what you have done in for us in and through your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, as we come to it this morning, we pray for the wisdom of your spirit. That you would open it to us, Lord. And let us see that we can do all things through you and that we can do nothing without you. We praise you and thank you for preserving that word and giving it to us and giving us the privilege and honor of looking into it this morning. In Christ's name, amen. I was uh, reading in my devotional this morning and I was reminded that... Uh, the Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Corinth uh, in his second letter to that church, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. And the problem was that people said, you know, Paul is pretty tough in his letters. As a matter of fact, in verse 10, it says, for one says his letters are weighty and strong. They're difficult to understand. They're really, really hard sometimes. But his personal appearance is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Uh, I don't know what you think of the Apostle Paul. I saw a guy from Jews for Jesus, Avi Snyder, used to do a, a presentation, one-man show of uh, Watchmen for the Morning, uh, Reflections of the Apostle Paul. And Avi Snyder was a guy about this tall and real skinny and balding, typical little Jewish guy. And he'd put on the costume and he had it all down. It was almost all scripture. It was absolutely marvelous. But he had this kind of a squeaky little voice. And that's what Paul's situation was. He probably had a, a kind of a weepy eye. He may have walked with a limp. He had a thorn in the flesh. And, and although his letters were really, really hard, he had this terribly unimpressive Appearance. And the letter to the church at Rome is one of those that has some really, really hard places. And that's where we're going this morning. Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. If I can get there. Paul writes, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, be minding the same toward one another, not minding high things, but condescending to the lowly, do not be wise in your own self, never pay back evil for evil. To anyone, 
respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, seeking peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul is dealing in these passages with the the practical application, the practical issue of Christian behavior. You've heard us say over and over and over again as we've gone through Romans that the first 11 chapters have to do with a theological foundation. And now Paul turns to the practical implications of that theological foundation. Because of what Christ has done for us, we must not be conformed to this world. Verse 2. Unfortunately, many Christians in the world today are, in fact, conformed to the world. George Barna, we were talking in Sunday school this morning, George Barna, a Christian demographer, has said that there's virtually no difference in the abortion rate between Christians and non-Christians. There's virtually, in fact, I think the latest figures show that there are more divorces among those who call themselves Christian than there are among the non-Christian population. We are becoming we are getting more and more and more to look like the world. We dress like the world. We talk like the world. We do the same things that the world does. And God's Word says, do not be conformed. Be transformed. We must be the new creatures that God has made us to be. We must be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You've heard, you've heard this preached, but what, is, what we need desperately to understand is renewing our mind. How? By the Word. By being in the Word. By being in fellowship. By being in prayer. The world thinks that you and I are just another creature that crawled out of the slime by accident. God's Word says we're made in His image for His glory. We must be transformed that purpose word. We prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Verse 2. You see, your behavior demonstrates to others that God is both real and important in your life. Or it demonstrates that He's not. In verses 3 through 8, God's Word teaches us that we are all part of the body of Christ. And each and every member is just as important as every other member. Many people think that the pastor is the most important person. He's the one that gets up front. Some churches, it's the worship leader who's most important. But every person is important. The person who cleans the church. The person who does the bulletin. The person who does all the filing. Every one of you has a gift from God and that gift is to be used for the building up of the body. In verses 9 through 13, God's Word in Romans teaches us that we must behave in love toward our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Verse 10 says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. 
Verse 13 says, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. And if you weren't here to hear the sermon of my brother Mark Riss last week, I urge you to get the, the, the sermon tape because he did a marvelous job of explaining what those verses ta- tell us about how we should behave in love toward one another. But in verses 14 through 21, God, speaking through the Apostle Paul, teaches us how to behave toward our enemies. And this is one of those hard things that Paul writes. This is not something that we want to hear. This is not something that we even think we can do. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. The word that we translate bless is a compound word, which means to speak well of. We are supposed to speak well of our enemies. Most of us speak spitefully of our enemies. We go around and tell other people what our enemies did to us, how terrible they were of those who have mistreated us. But Scripture says that we must speak well of them. Most of you even know the Greek word there. How many have ever been to a a funeral? And heard a eulogy. Okay? The Greek word means to speak well of. We don't speak bad things about the dead. When we go to a funeral, we speak well of the dead. We have a eulogy. And so Scripture says that we must eulogize our enemies. Now, many of us think, hey, great, we can talk about them when they're dead. you know." <laughs> but that's not what it's saying, folks. It's saying when you talk about your enemies, speak well of them. The word is used in the idea of praying for our enemies. To bless means to pray for God's blessing. Just as Christ prayed in the garden or at his crucifixion in Luke 23:34, "Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing." As they were nailing him to the cross, as they were pulling the cross up and dropping it into a hole in the ground, he was praying, "Father, forgive them." They don't know what they're doing. Speak well of them. We word study says to bless is to speak well of. It's in the present imperative and therefore means continuous action. It's the same word used in Ephesians 1 verse 3. God who has blessed us. You see, God speaks well of us who are his and we need to speak well of our enemies continuously. The word curse there is another interesting word. It's a compound word which literally means to to pray against. To ask God to curse someone. It's not profanity in the sense that you and I think of cursing. It means to pray a curse upon someone. To ask God to condemn them. Curse is, is literally stop cursing. You see, what Paul understood is that the people in the church at Rome were a lot like us. And they were praying for God to curse their enemies. To persecute is a word which literally means to pursue, to press against. It has the idea of pushing you up against something and you can't get away and and you can't breathe. And it's like an army who is pursuing a, a weaker foe and they're pressing them, taking advantage of them. The world calls down God's curse upon their enemies. 
Even though they may not acknowledge that God is God, even though they may not know who God is, many in the world today ask God to curse their enemies. They ask that God damn their enemies. Those that they don't like or those that displease them. As Christians, we must pray for God to bless our enemies. And not to curse them. In Matthew 5 verses 43 through 45. Jesus says you've heard that it was said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. In order that you may be sons of your father. Who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In Luke, 26, in Luke 6, verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Not only must we pray for our enemies, but as Christians, you and I must identify with our enemies. This is something we find easier to do with brothers and sisters in Christ. They're part of the family. They're like us. They mostly treat us well. We like to identify with them. We like to go to their stores. We like to buy things from them. We like to hang out with them. We like to talk the Bible with them. But this passage is not talking about them. It's talking about identifying with our enemies. You must rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's much easier to weep with those who weep. We can identify with those who have tragedy in their lives. This is illustrated by the outpouring of Christian aid to those who were devastated by the Hurricane Katrina. By the way, we have a a lady in the congregation this morning. I believe her name was Linda Ray. And I encourage you to meet her after the service, um, whose home was in, I believe it was uh, Mobile. um, I'm sorry? Gulfport, I'm sorry, uh, and was wiped out. So I encourage you to, to meet her and talk to her um, and, and comfort her. Um, it's easy to identify with those who have been devastated. It was illustrated by the outpouring of Christian aid to those devastated by the tsunami. Phenomenal outpouring of Christian aid. Even though the, most of them were Muslims. It's just really easy to do that. We, we, we really want to help other people. But it's really, really hard. It's much more difficult to rejoice with those who rejoice. It's easy to politely congratulate someone who's been promoted or has been greatly blessed in some way. It's much more difficult to rejoice with someone who got promoted over you. It's much more difficult to rejoice with someone who won the lottery when you desperately need cash. We tend to ignore those kinds of situations. We tend to be polite. But we really wish it had happened to us. And that's probably why that command is listed first in the order, in a position of emphasis. You see, you and I need to be thinking about others. Verse 16 is literally, be minding the same 
toward one another, not minding high things, but condescending to the lowly. Do not be wise in your own self. In other words, don't think that you're better than other people. You're not. Because we in Western culture have, for the most part, been blessed by God. We tend to think of ourselves as better than those who have not been so blessed. We tend to think of ourselves as working harder. We tend to think of ourselves as smarter. We tend to think of ourselves as better. And we're not. We're commanded not to be thinking high things but to be condescending to the lowly. The word condescending is not to look down on, as most people think of it today. Uh, He behaved toward me in a condescending way. He looked down upon me. That's not what the word means. Webster's second definition for condescending is to deal with people in a patronizingly superior manner. That's the way most of us think of condescending in the world today. But Webster's first definition for condescending is to descend to the level of one considered inferior, to lower oneself. And that's what Scripture is talking about here, because that's what Christians are commanded to do, because that's what Christ himself did. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 10. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped and be held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. You see, Jesus Christ was God. He was in heaven. He had all the glory of all of the creatures around him, praising him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he put all of that aside and came down to earth. He descended to our level and lived among us. Emmanuel, God with us. To live the life that we could not live. And humble himself to death on a cross. A terrible, terrible, painful death. And not only that, he took upon himself the wrath of God the Father for your sin and my sin. When you think you have difficulties in your life, reflect upon that picture. Jesus Christ upon the cross. Say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Feeling the wrath of God for your sin and my sin. And I would be, I would venture to say that your troubles will seem a little bit lighter. I've told some of you the story before. When I was in seminary, I was having a terrible time. School was not going well. Things were awful. I was having a horrible time with Hebrew and all the reading and, and the, I get my papers back and it looked like a professor cut his throat. You know, it was all red. <laughs> 
I went, I went into my father confessor, Alma Winnie, a Greek teacher, New Testament teacher, and, oh, you got a few minutes? Yeah. And I just unloaded. And Al sat there quietly listening. And when I finally got to the point of taking a breath, he said, let's pray. So we started praying. And as I was praying, that picture came to mind. And the tears just poured. Because I realized that no matter how much I could suffer in this life, Jesus Christ had suffered far beyond anything I could ever imagine for me. Things haven't been the same since. Be condescending to the lowly. Put yourself on their level. Do not be wise in your own self. Wise is from a word which means to, to rein in as a, as a girdle reins in the midriff. It means to be restrained in your thinking and your thought process. It means to be discreet or have a cautious character. We tend to think of ourselves as wise in our own self. We become arrogant or puffed up. That's what the word pride means in the Scripture. When others don't agree with us, we think of them as stupid or ignorant. And we want nothing to do with them. There's an old joke down south about the Baptists. You know, they multiply by dividing. I, I remember years ago driving through Louisiana, Mississippi, and you know, you drive down and there's a Baptist church and you go down a half a mile and there's another Baptist church and you go down a mile and there's a third Baptist church. And it's like there's a Baptist church everywhere you go. Presbyterians do it too. In fact, Presbyterians are called the split peas because we've done all those splitting James Montgomery Boyce says one writer tells of a crossroads in a small town where there were churches on three of the four corners. When a stranger asked what churches they were, he was told, well, that one is United Presbyterian. This one is Reformed Presbyterian. And this one, pointing to the third, is for the Presbyterians who are neither United nor Reformed. <laughs> Don't let your mind be puffed up. Put a girdle on it. Don't think of yourselves as better than others. You must be a peacemaker. Verse 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, seeking peace with all men. The verse teaches that it is not always possible to live in peace. Robert Haldane in his commentary says, we are never to seek to maintain peace either with the world or with Christians by the sacrifice of any part of divine truth. A Christian must be willing to be unpopular that he may be useful and faithful. Most of the Christian world, particularly in Western culture, thinks peace at any cost. We have to get along. I remember years ago, uh, Rodney King, can't we all just get along? The answer is no. When truth is involved. The problem today is that many people don't believe there is an ultimate truth because they don't believe in God. But there is an ultimate truth. And you and I have to stand for that truth. We have to seek peace. 
But when someone wants to do something contrary to Scripture, we have to say no. That's the only reason for splitting a church, by the way. Most churches split over the color of the carpet. Or whether to have a stained glass window or a cross up front. Those are not reasons to split a church. The only reason to leave a church is if they're not preaching the truth. And they refuse to change. Jesus says in Matthew 10.34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. You see, Jesus Christ did not come to make peace with all men. To have everybody live in this warm, fuzzy world with everybody getting along. Jesus Christ came to divide people. We were talking in Sunday school this morning about an exodus where God says, I'm going to send a a, a plague upon the cattle of the Egyptians, but I'm going to divide the cattle of the Egyptians and the cattle of the Israelites. I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to put a separation between them. And that's what Jesus Christ came to do, to divide people up into the two camps that exist in this world, those who are saved and those who are not. You and I must always be actively seeking peace. The Greek verb there is a a form which means continuous action. But that peace must not be with the sacrifice of the truth of God's word. James 3.17 says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. You must never pay back evil for evil. That's the way to ensure that there is no peace. The way of the world is like one of my favorite, used to be favorite cartoon characters when I would read the Sunday funnies. Hagar the Horrible. Hagar the Horrible tells his son, son, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Attack your enemy at once and waste him. While what he did to you is still fresh in your mind. (laughs) That is what has been going on in Israel and Palestine since 1957. It's what's been going on between Muslims and Christians since the 700s. That's what's going on today in Iraq between the Sunnis and the Shiites and the Kurds. The attitude of the world is, I don't get even, I get one up. And then I don't get even, I get one up. And pretty soon you got a war on your hands. Verse 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Wow. You mean I got to be nice to those people? Yeah. Jesus Christ did not respond with evil toward those who persecuted, beat, ripped out his beard in chunks and crucified him. Jesus Christ did not respond with evil toward you and I who despised him, who refused to acknowledge him as God, who refused to obey his commandments. 
But he was gracious to us. We're talking in Sunday school about Exodus where Pharaoh, God over and over and over, brings these plagues, these demonstrations that he is God. And it said Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh made his heart strong or heavy. He refused to acknowledge that God is God. Jesus Christ died a terrible death and suffered the wrath of God for the evil way you and I behaved toward Him. And He did it so that you and I might live eternally before God in heaven. Jesus Christ overcame our evil with good. Verse 17 says, respect what is right in the sight of all men. Literally, the verse says, providing good things before all men. The word retranslate respect is a word which means to think ahead and therefore to provide. My wife's always trying to get me to think ahead and I very seldom wind up doing that. She always has to pick up the pieces behind me. Fortunately, she's good at that. You must think ahead about what is good before or in the presence of all men. You see, your behavior is a witness to Jesus Christ. So before you go out and do something, think about how is it going to look to everybody else? In the Navy, we talked about the six P's. Proper prior planning prevents poor performance. Think ahead. How is it going to look when you do something? It's said of Billy Graham that he never rode in a car with a woman by himself. What would it look like to other people? There may be something completely innocent there. But avoid even the appearance of evil. Respect what is good before all men. And you must never take your own revenge. That's the way of Hagar Hagar the Horrible in most of the world. Verse 19 says, leave room for the wrath. In Greek, if you wanted to say uh, a podium, you you would just say, use the word podium. If you wanted to say this particular podium, you'd put the article, the the in front of it. And here, it has, wrath has the article. It's the wrath. What, whose wrath is it? Commentators are divided on that. But since Paul quotes from the Old Testament, it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says Yahweh. It's very clearly in my mind the wrath of God that is in view. And literally, the verse says, Give place to the wrath of God. The word we translate room or place means a spot that's already occupied. It's used of a scabbard that has a sword in it. Therefore, we must never put our wrath in the place of the wrath of God. Which is what we do a lot of times. John Murray says the essence of ungodliness is that we presume to take the place of God. To take everything into our own hands. It is faith to commit ourselves to God, to cast all our cares on him and to vest all our interests in him. In reference to the matter at hand, 
how you treat your enemies, the wrongdoing of which we are the victims. The way of faith is to recognize that God is the judge and to leave the execution of vengeance and retribution to Him. Never may we in our private, personal relations execute the vengeance which wrongdoing merits. In your private relationships, when someone wrongs you, it is wrong, it is sinful, it is wicked to take vengeance in your own hands and execute vengeance against that person. Leave it to God. He's much more capable than you and I. Note that Paul is dealing here with private relationships. How do we know that? He's not teaching about civil, judicial, or criminal situations because he immediately goes on in chapter 13 to deal with the power of the civil magistrate, the government, and he says the ruler bears the sword as a minister of God. The government acts for God, or should, to avenge wrongdoing, but not in private relationships. In private relationships, you must treat your enemies in a loving way. Verse 20 says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon your head. And everybody goes, oh, yes, I can be I can be good to him and heap burning coals on their head. No, that's not what it's saying, folks. Sorry. I don't know how many people I've had say that to me over the years as a minister. It's not saying do good to your enemies so that they will suffer. We must feed them when they're hungry. We must give them a drink when they are thirsty. This does not mean that you should be nice to your enemy so that he will suffer. Charles Hodge put it best, I think. He said, to heap coals of fire on anyone is a punishment which no one can bear. He must yield to it. Kindness is no less effectual. The most malignant enemy cannot always withstand it. The true and Christian method, therefore, to subdue an enemy is to overcome evil with good. As Christ overcame our evil toward him with the good of suffering upon the cross. You see, when you behave in that way toward your enemy, you get their attention. The world's like Hagar the Horrible. Let's get one up. They expect that from you. They do not expect that you would leave aside your glory and get down on their level and treat them in a good way. They don't expect that you would be Christ-like. Years ago, I met a man who was ministering in Africa. His name was Kefa Simpangi. And he tells a story. He wrote a book called A Distant Grief. And in that book, he tells the story of uh, during the time of Idi Amin. Idi Amin had death squads that were going around and executing Christians. And Kefa Simpangi was in the church. And after the service, he was in the office. And one of uh, Idi Amin's death squads, death squads burst into the office with um, automatic weapons and said, you're fixing to die. We're going to execute you. 
And Kefik Sampangi tells a story that he began to pray out loud for their salvation. And the leader of the death squad was so astonished that he stopped and they left. And the leader of that death squad eventually became a Christian and helped Kefa Sempangi eventually escape from the country. You see, that's the kind of idea that we need to have. When someone's there with an automatic weapon ready to execute us, instead of going, oh God, please save me. Oh God, please save them. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. To be Christian means to be Christ one. To be Christ-like. James Montgomery Boyce points out that there, there are three steps in the progression of these verses here. First, do no evil. As Christ did no evil to anyone. Second, do good instead of evil. As Christ did good. And third, and this is the, the toughest one, do good even to your enemies, as Christ did good even toward those who persecuted and killed him, you and I. Boy, says so there are two practical requirements in order to do this. The first is peace with God. You must be a Christian. You can't be Hagar the horrible. There's no way that someone who does not have Christ can behave this way toward their enemies. Second, boy says, you must have the peace of God. You must be at peace with God and with yourself. Philippians 4, verses 5 through 7 says, Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. Be anxious for nothing. No matter what circumstance you find yourself in, no matter how... How large the trouble, no matter how terrible the difficulty, be anxious for nothing. That's a command. But in everything, with prayer and thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Turn it over to God, folks. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus and enable you and me to live with one another and to love one another and to love even our enemies as Christ loved each and every one of you who in faith testifies of him by how you behave toward your brothers and by how you behave toward your enemies. And I pray that as you leave here, each one of you can behave in love toward all of those. Let's pray together.